This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to The Rest is Entertainment, the questions edition with me, Marina Hyde. And me, Richard Osman, once again, it's questions and answers. Yeah, sorry, I just not should ju- make that not clear. Ju- not just questions. But Richard, let's get right into it. Although the questions were more fun last week than the answers, yes, I have as, to say. Yes, and they always will be. And it'll be so much quicker. Right, Lisa Burns, Richard, would like to know, she says, you talk a lot about overnights, catch-up, streaming, different platforms, etc., and how well or not a show is doing in the ratings, but how are the numbers actually collected? This is a very good question. It is a good question, It's and it hasn't changed a lot for many, many years. So certainly when we talk about linear TV, so we talked about Gladiators getting 6.4 million um, on the other show this week, and it is a number of people... Uh, have barb boxes in their home. And barb that's... is the British Audience Research Board. Exactly <laughs> right. You can, you can already tell it's like from the 80s. Yeah. And they are attached to their television and essentially it can measure what you are watching and you can then input if there's more than one person in your household watching a particular show. They can be attached to devices nowadays. They, they have an app yeah. that can do it so it is it has kept pace with the modern era. Yeah. How many families in or households have these boxes? I think it's... It's around 5,000, I think, something around 5,000, which is, you know, we'll, we'll get on to whether that's representative. Yeah, essentially, that all that gets sent back to the Barb headquarters. And you have to say who was watching in the, in your household. Yeah. That you have to be quite specific. You can't just, they can't think that the whole family were tuning into, e.g. gladiators, if it's just one of you dreaming of jet on your own. Yeah. <laughs> one of you dreaming of jet on your own. Is that a euphemism? It is, I'm afraid. Yeah. And the, those all get fed through and is aggregated, and the next morning... The overnights come through, which is how many people were watching the night before. These days, you then a week later get the catch-up figures, which is what everyone was watching on streaming as well. And if you're Netflix and people like that, you have your own metrics to do it. But the bar box is is the thing that's been the, the heart of the overnights for many, many, many years. It has the odd inconsistency, but not by much is the truth. If a show starts big and creeps up a bit the next week, it will always creep up a bit the next week and the next week. I've never seen an actual problem where a show that lots of people watched looks like no one watched it, or vice versa. There was one week with Channel 4 when they had a show, it's a new panel show that they put on Saturday nights, and they, they, they held great store by it. And the ratings came through, and it said it got 2.4 million, and they suddenly went, thank God, we knew it. We got ourselves a hit. And then it came through, there was a glitch in the data and it got something like 0.8 million. Uh, but just for a day. 
they thought they had a, a hit on their hands and they didn't. So it, it used to rule everything the overnights i slightly love the barb the idea of the box because it's like we think of it you know it's like a sort of nation of goggle, goggle boxes but mm. it's this kind of five thousand household strong panel it's unpaid you get vouchers you get paid in vouchers for sort of high street shops that could be popular for all ages which i think is there's something so homespun about it all i love the idea of it but also you know people say how can you tell the, the viewing habits of a nation by from five thousand people that's plenty enough any polling organization will tell you if you want to you know general election whatever it is two thousand and above that's what you need five thousand is not bad because there's lots of smaller channels now and occasionally the bar box can make a difference there i think there was someone was telling me a show I can't remember what was on, not ITV3, but one of the smaller channels. And um, the ratings would sort of go up and it would, it would do well for a few weeks and it would do badly for a few weeks. And they were, it was all down to one guy who worked on the oil rigs who would, uh, <laughs> who loved the show. So when he was home, he would watch it. And when he went away, he wouldn't watch it. And he was the entire 80,000 viewership of uh, That's incredible. Of the there's, a, there's a button you press when which says, I'm away, I'm on holiday, I'm away, so that you can, you, you can sort of put the closed sign on your barb panel door. Someone I know um, has got a barb box I've recently <gasps> discovered. Someone's recently been added to the panel. I will oh, keep that, that person's identity But that is quiet. immense prestige as far as I'm concerned. That is. Can you imagine? How long had they been trying to get on the panel for? Oh, I don't think they've tried. I think it was random. A pro- like jury service? Like jury service. I think it'll be one of the sugar babes. I think it just yeah. happens to you. <laughs> but... Think of the pressure, though, every time yeah, you're watching I would something. Take it re- I would really, really take my responsibilities incredibly seriously. It's television. Yeah. It's, it's huge, Richard. Like, if I'm watching Gladiators, I'm like, but am I, am I really, really enjoying it? Do I want to watch Anton Dick's Limitless win instead? Or do I actually think it's a responsibility to Uneasy the nation? Uneasy is the head that wears the crown. It's Uneasy is the head... Yeah, that has a bar heavy, box. a heavy crowd. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But so it is not perfect. But it's not, it's not bad. Is the truth. It's a pretty accurate reflection of what people are watching and what people are, uh, are not watching. And if ever something incredibly weird happens, it's usually an hour later they go, oh, there was a mistake in the data. So it's very, very, very trusted by all the channels and all the advertisers. There's a question from Jamie Cowling. He says, one for Marina, please. How do newspapers decide which columnists are right for them? It seems baffling to me that particularly in an era when budgets are light and it's digital first, some columnists have regular features. Yeah, tell us about columnists and tell us about newspapers and their their, their economic worth. Well, it's interesting. I think sort of columnists are slightly different. I am obviously am a newspaper columnist. I think there's the columnists are slightly different from other areas in the paper. I will say for the Guardian, one thing that I really value is that they a few years ago started giving us our data. So you can see the minute your piece is launched online, you can see the numbers it's doing in real time, where the referrals are coming from. Maybe they're coming from the front page of the website because it happens to be there, or maybe they're coming from Apple News or from Twitter or from Facebook or all sorts of other things, and you can see your numbers. That's going to make me sound as though I just think it's all a numbers game, which I don't because there's lots of parts of a newspaper that are sort of, perhaps they're unloved, perhaps it's a sort of kind of niche um, or foreign reporting that's really important. And it may not do huge numbers, but it's really important that it's covered and it's really important that it's there. Having said that, I do think that <laughs> columnists go. is probably, I'm, I could be wrong about this. I mean, I'm not the employer, I'm just the employed, but columnists is a numbers game, I think, really. You get people who you think are going to get large amounts of numbers, you hope, uh, entertain people or whatever it is. 
people talk a lot about sort of hate watching or, or, or people you love to hate and you read like that. And there are a lot of people and you'll see that their columns might go viral and sometimes people are laughing at the columns and sometimes people just can't believe that that person said that thing. And it becomes a sort of, so, you know, they get a lot of numbers that way. I would say that what they really, really want, what viewership or eyeballs to translate into subscriptions or, or donations in the case of the Guardian's um, membership model. And therefore, the hate watch thing, you're not going to pay for people that you can't really you, you can't really stand or you just think that they've written some outrageous thing this week and you're going to scream about it on Twitter for a day. But I do think it's important to get the numbers. And I think probably as a columnist, you want to get high numbers or a specific type of deep engagement. One thing I really like about the way we have our data is that you can see how long it was read for, whether it was read right to the, you know, you can see it was read at a percentage score of how, how the people who read it, did they read it to the end, things like that. With, you with, know, your, with, with your data, do you get to see other people's data as well? Yes, you do. And of course, it's no. important that my enemy should fail as well. Rather, so you get, you get to see everyone's data? Yes. but like, You can see the data of the, the articles. You can see uh, any article, in the really? yeah, and whoever's written it, and you can, I suppose, you can see other people's numbers. Yes, so you can see how long people read theirs for as yes, well. Yes, you, so can. you can compare and contrast. There are certain things that affect that. Like if something gets referred from Apple News, you'll get because it's sort of global, you'll get these huge spikes in numbers, but they tend not to follow through with the same engagement because it's just a, it, it doesn't get so deeply read. Yeah. But it's it's really interesting, and it's something that I personally pay a lot of attention to and other people other papers may have completely different kind of um, the guardian i'm sure has much more sophisticated measuring than what we're even allowed to see um i've there are other papers who've very you know been interested in hiring me at various points people like the new york times other people like paper, places like that have different ways of measuring and they have different things that they would want from you, you they might want you to I don't know, be a, converse, a columnist for an American paper because they think that it they want you to bring in an Anglophone audience. Everyone now is chasing the same sort of, it's a bit like it's gone global. It's a bit like Netflix or whatever. You're chasing kind of global eyeballs. So they might feel that you can bring that in. Global eyeballs. Global eyeballs. That's Sorry, good, that's, that's not that's a very welcome, good way of putting that's it. That's a good name for a podcast. Um, yeah, I know. It's, I'm slightly, yeah, I am a writer, you know. I mean, really, global eyeballs. Anyway. But this, um, but how true is that of the whole newspaper industry? So I, I always think this, when, when you sort of look at some of the stuff that's thrown up by the algorithm, everything, everything is ruled by clicks, right? Or you have to have those clicks to do the other work. Yes, you do. But I think that there is a danger where you can just constantly have kind of ridiculous headlines to draw people in, um, that or the clickbaity stuff, or kind of absurd positions, or in some cases, I've thought always sort of quite exploitative young people writing personal essays of one type or another that I always advise people not to write if they're asking me you know how to get it started because they can get you a huge amount of attention for one day but then I don't think the pastoral care is often there in terms of the people who commission these things and they can you know they blow up you're not really looked after you're not you're suddenly at the center of a storm for writing something or you've written about some terrible thing that's happened to you and then I think go back and write those stories when you've become more established as a writer. I really do feel that. This is sorry, we've gone a bit tangentially off there. But you can get for those kind of personal first person things, which is why you see a lot more of that now. Um, you can get big, big numbers. But it's getting people to stick around, to come back because they like the same thing every week. I personally think that that is the, uh, the big thing to maintain numbers week after week and also ideally to get people to subscribe to your publication or to donate to your publication um, or whatever you, in whatever yeah. way keeps it going because I mean of it, listen you, you're not going to say it but you are almost always top of the numbers for 
The Guardian, uh, and you do insane numbers on social media as well. Can you see how much of that engagement does lead to donations as well? Is that something I you can can't, see? I can't see that, actually, within The Guardian. Yeah. I wonder if I could ask, but you can talk to people who can tell you, roughly speaking, where you fit into how much translates to subscriptions. And I know on other papers, you know, they were at the time for a while on The Telegraph, they were offering people a bonus for every person that said, I've subscribed because of X. You'd like that, wouldn't you? Yes, I, I would. But in but in, negoci- <laughs> in negotiations, it's, the numbers are, are brought up. You're you're able to bring up those numbers if you are if you're talking about renewing a contract or well, something. Well, I mean, I don't. Dare I don't know if I want to talk about <laughs> that. But I do. I do think about my numbers a lot, and yes. I think that you probably have to. Yeah, I think you have to as well. You want to be making money for someone. You know, it's nice to be paid, but you want to make sure that people yes, are paying you are, are, are getting a little bit extra on top because then everyone's happy. And e- yes, but equally, you want to sometimes cash in the goodwill that you've te- got by telling lots of jokes about this or that and think, I would like to write a column about the post office this week back when perhaps it wasn't being yeah, yeah. covered in quite the way it is currently now. And you think I could, you could do that. So I think in those terms, it, it can be quite useful to have that sort of thing that if people are coming back week after week, then sometimes you can present something unexpected in the space. Yeah. Great question. Thank you, Richard. <laughs> I'm much too embarrassed to talk about me anymore. Can we please move on? And I can say, oh yeah, this yeah. is a much better question. Steve McQueen says, who is your favourite Muppet? Oh, that's a good question, isn't it? I think probably Fozzie Bear. Oh, really? I think okay. would be my yeah. favourite because he's got that kind of old school vaudeville thing. Yeah. Do you know why it's called Fozzie Bear? No. Uh, Frank Oz. Ah, really? Fozzie, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, there you go. He used to do the voice. Doesn't anymore, of course. Okay. Um, how about yours? Mine would be Miss Piggy and Carnet. Just a, cu- a couple on again, off again. I am here for all of their drama. I do actually have quite a lot of sympathy with Miss Piggy because I I know she people she wears her heart on her sleeve, but I know yeah. she's a, she's a handful, aren't we all? Yeah. But I sometimes feel that Kermit is a little withholding. Yeah, I can I can live without Kermit. Yeah, yeah, there's a South Park episode, actually, where Wendy keeps sending, Wendy Stan's girlfriend, she keeps sending him really long texts, and he just replies each time with a thumbs up emoji. I slightly (laughs) feel that's the story of the Piggy and Kermit relationship that, you know, I think he should sort of step up and... I like Stadler and Waldorf as well. Yeah, of course, with the critics. You know, that's, yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. What do you think at home? Uh, Favourite Muppet? (laughs) Um, Here is a question for you. Funny if we talked about this on the Q&A last uh, week. Nettie Arimel says, what is the fourth wall? I've heard it referred to, however, I don't know what it really means. Is there also a first, second and third wall? Very she good. Continues. Okay, well, the first, second and third wall would basically sort of be, the fourth wall is the sort of, it's the invisible wall that separates the audience from the actors. And most plays and things, and, and most TV drama you see nowadays, almost all, without exception, it's almost like you're looking in through a window. They're not acknowledging you. Your presence is being isn't being acknowledged. Um, I think Stanislavski called it invisible solitude. These things are happening on the stage. Stanislavski, yeah, Stanislavski. He, he has something for every occasion, he doesn't he? Is, well, yes, I think I think he does really. Um, actually, anyhow, actually, do you know what? He was my favourite Muppet. <laughs> The proscenium arch in the theatre was originally, you can imagine that that went over the stage and you answered your, the other part of your question, the first, second and third walls are the, sides the, of the, the, stage. the, the side of the stage and the backs, backs of the stage. But actually the fourth wall is a really relatively recent invention in the whole of drama because it's obviously for listed, it existed almost as long as humans have existed. And 
the actors were forever talking to the audience and involving them and there were choruses and there were there was an acknowledgement that this was an artifice that this wasn't really happening and it's only as things started to become more and more naturalistic 16th 17th 18th centuries that the idea the people on stage would stop acknowledging people in the audience and then but you still now see it obviously it was used to huge effect in fleabag where she turns around and what it gives you is that allows you i guess you as the audience know more than the characters which is a sort of great position always to be in a drama. So the fourth wall, te- the fourth wall on television is the screen. Is the screen essentially? And yeah. any time someone looks down the barrel at you directly in the middle of a drama, they're breaking the. And fourth it's wall. very rare in television these yeah. days. And you go back to some of the things of the eighties, which we were talking about, sort of something like House of Cards, where Francis Urquhart, the original, who later played both sort of Kevin Spacey in the US adaptation, will look out and speak to the audience. I was thinking that Robert Lindsay did it in GBH. Moran, um, Miranda does it. Yes, in Miranda yes, talks to the it's, audience. It's Mrs. saying Brown's boys. It, yes, they do it. That's, it's self-conscious, that's we it, wasn't it? Yeah, that's why we mentioned yeah. it. It's self-conscious, and in some cases, in those things like perhaps like in House of Cards and GBH, they're kind of reaching for a, to some extent, Shakespearean vibe. You're thinking about these epic stories of downfalls and betrayals, and there's something quite sort of Shakespearean and old-timey about that. And so you might have the equivalent of a kind of chorus, but in general, it's rare, and you really have to earn it, I think, because it takes you out of the world, obviously. So it has to be really important to make it work. I quite like it. They do it in books as well. There's yeah. a, you know where when an author directly addresses you as a reader. Yeah. Uh, and I've, there's something about it I quite like. I've, as you say, I think it takes people too much out of the world. So it's not something I would particularly do myself, but I like it when an author has the confidence to do it. Yeah, so you that's can, the fourth Like rule. all those things, you can once you know the rules, you've got to be really good, then you can break then them can and it can them. really work. Shall we take a pause and listen to some messages from our sponsors? Let's indeed do that. No flipping. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back Welcome to the back. Rest is Entertainment Questions Edition. I am kicking off immediately with a hard hitter, Richard. Questions and Answers Edition. Oh, sorry. Yes. <laughs> From Colin let's Evans. Just call, let's just call it Questions let's Edition. Just call, can we call it the Questions Edition? Yes, so that let's I, do that. Yes, I, I, I'm never going to get it right. I've got, got it t- the synaptic connection now just won't make itself. So I'm always going to just call it the Questions Edition. Let's call it T-R-I-E-T-Q-E. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> Colin Evans, Richard, which is worse, the House of Games or pointless board games? Both, of course, serious family breakdowns in this household due to the high hopes we held of being fans of both shows. Oh, goodness. That's such a good question. Um, Yes. 
I'll say I will say this. I'm not a fan of either. I like both the shows. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, when there's all sorts of spin-offs that come when you make a TV show, and board games are one of them. They're not particularly lucrative for anybody. There must be a bit. Otherwise, for you would have surely masterminded it <laughs> well, and said, "I well, will take care of this." Well, yeah, you know. Uh, so the pointless one is almost incomprehensible. The one good thing about the pointless board game is it gives you loads of question cards. Yeah. So I would say if you've got that board game. Just take the question cards and make your own format. Yes, is what I would say. House of Games board game I have not played. The House of Games books that Alan Connor writes, yes. who's, who's, who's the chief question editor, they're pretty good because uh, there's lots of questions from the show. But he also writes some. He also writes some new ones, and you can just go through that in any order you want to. But yeah, in general, uh, I've never been across the board games. It's the sort of thing that they sort of come to you right at the end of the process and say, "Is this okay?" And of the 50 things you're doing that day, you kind of go, I mean, no, but what do you want me to do? People always say, well, why don't you do apps as well? There's not really that much money in um, in apps for, for TV shows. I think that the program itself, that's the wellspring of the, uh, yeah. of the thing that uh, you try and take care of. The books, I think, are good. But yeah, board games is one of those things that I've, I've never, I'd like to develop my own board game. Yeah, but it's not that would not be a rated. Fun to, thing. I, I'm sorry. I, I I played a sort of traitors one at the weekend, and I, you know, I'm not in a Scottish castle sitting around a round table in a very very high stakes battle for my future, and it's just not as fun doing it round my table. And there's no real way that you can create. Yeah, really. the only similarity was Claudia was there. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's the only one. It, yeah, I, th- I think board games board games are tricky because they're different to television shows, and they they have to. It's it's tough for the board game companies. I'll, I will I will give them that. You know, they want to do stuff with rules, but honestly, people just want the question cards. I yeah. think, and then they can you can you can play it however you want. So we've got some House of Games question cards. That the small set that is better. Okay, because you, then then you yeah. do it your own way. Yeah, don't don't worry about the, the the formats and all that kind of stuff. Just play with the cards. I would say. I would love you to do a board yeah. game. Will you do a board game? You surely will at some point. Uh, I don't know. It's a good question. There's a, it'd be a bit of fun, wouldn't it? Yeah. Good question. Put me on the spot, though. That's you know that's uh, that's tricky for me. Yes. Okay. That's very personal to me, the board game thing. Yes, I yeah. know. It really is hard. <laughs> yeah, I used to on Twitter. Every reply I used to be that this board game is terrible, but for pointless. Yeah. I don't get it so much for House of Games, but the pointless board game I think was very disappointing for many Christmases. It's good you're not one of those people who sort of puts it in their biography. I do not do the board games. <laughs> I had to eventually. Did you? Well, I had to. I had to do so, a tweet just saying, guys, I've nothing to do with the board game. I'm so sorry. Sorry, I ruined Christmas. <laughs> oh, here's an interesting one from Duncan Smith. Thank you, Duncan. My question is, why do film and TV extras not get credited? They spend many hours on set, do an important job, yet the carpenter's assistant's cousin twice removed makes it to the credits. Doesn't seem fair. Right. Well, I can on something like film or television. First of all, I have to Duncan take a slight issue that the carpenter's assistant cousin, or as you put it, I realise you're exaggerating for comic effect, but the those those jobs are hugely important. Those people get there at four in the morning, and they'll probably be last to leave at like the, the sparks, the grip setting stuff up. Yeah. And those jobs are massively important and they will be there for the whole shoot. And sometimes this can be uh, for a year. And and, and they'll they'll have been there for six months before the shoot. Yeah, they have not turned up one day and been an extra in a street scene. Not to denigrate the work of those people, but if you've credited all of those people, you already look now on the credits for some, you know, a lot of kind of superhero franchise films or films with a lot of CGI in. And there are genuinely about... 
I don't know, six or 700 sort of animated CG post-production people and their names are tiny, tiny, tiny and they'll have been put in sort of run-on paragraphs basically in the really at the back end of the credits and they will have spent... I mean, months on it, and they will have worked brutal hours under, you know, sort of crunch culture where there there aren't really enough VFX houses now to do the work that is required of most of these things, and people work kind of exhausting hours. So you can't, I don't think, put what's called background or supporting artists, different ways of describing the same things, um, you can't really necessarily credit all those people, not that they aren't valued. I mean, in those old films, things like Gandhi, they had something like 300,000 yes, extras. Those would be long credits. On, um, on Lawrence of Arabia, I think the extras had a mutiny, like a genuine mutiny. You know, there can be situations in that where um, background or supporting artists feel they're being very badly treated, but... There was a wonderful interview recently in The Guardian with a woman who's been the, an extra the most time. She holds the Guinness World Record wow. for being an extra in the most things. And she had an absolutely sort of fascinating take on the sort of background's eye view of the movie industry and who she was told never to make eye contact with, Tom Cruise. All the different things she's done over the years. And someone has tried to piece together all her little tiny oh, momentary brilliant. things. It was absolutely wonderful. So I recommend reading that. But in general, it's just not possible. Yeah. To, you, the credits would go on for 15 years. It's it's a nice gig, that. But you're right, there's an awful lot of negotiation over credit, certainly in TV where credits do have to be a certain length. And not everyone can be credited on every episode. So if you're in wardrobe or makeup, you know, given you've got to fit them into 20 seconds sometimes, and there's 100 people who are genuinely integral to the show. Yeah. And as you say, by the way, the assistant to the carpenter is unbelievably integral Important. to the show. The show doesn't work without all of That's the one of the beauties about TV is yeah. there's... Behind the behind the camera and in front of camera, and every everyone does their job properly, and everyone needs to do their job properly. But yeah, you have to have big negotiations over who can get credited, who can be a producer. Oh, who the can crediting be an of writers producer. is a huge. I mean, yeah. loads of people. I know so many people who've written a lot and spent put a lot into shows on which they receive absolutely zero credit for, and that is a it's it's a very difficult thing to negotiate, and it's a and you go into being an extra knowing that that's the that's the, that's the gig. Yeah, and it's and, it's and if quite you get a, a line. Gig. You you will be credited. You'll be credited and uh, and paid an awful and paid lot more money as well. So much more than you yeah. would otherwise, just for saying a tiny thing. One of the fun things to watch in TV is if there's a scene where there's only three people in it, and one of them doesn't say anything throughout the whole scene. You know it's because they don't want to pay that person. Yeah. They just they're literally there as ballast. Always fun to watch those scenes and go, is that person an extra or are they? going to say something oh they didn't say anything at all we think oh okay yeah. you just got a day rate whereas if they said something a couple of grand yeah straight yeah. away it's such a jump yeah lovely question though this is a question from sam king who says i'd love to get your thoughts or insight into why the bbc has never thought to bring back top of the pops following its cancellation in 2006 personally i think it's crazy that a slot can't be found in either the bbc one or bbc two schedules for a weekly show that plays the most popular music of the time Top of the Pops is how I discovered so much of the most important music of my life as a child teenager, and it feels a shame that the current generation don't have the same type of show. Even in this era of online content, there's surely a place for it on Terrestrial. It's a, you know what? It's a really good question, and I have a lot of sympathy with Sam, because I used to love Top of the Pops, and, you know, I still love the charts. I'll still look at the charts every week, and, and you know, I'm, I'm a huge fan of, of current pop music. I think our generation's missing out on an awful lot of great music yeah. because we don't have Top of the Pops. Um I think the truth is the younger generation genuinely don't need... Or care about it. ...top of the pops. No. Well, it was last time in 2006, so if you're 17, it's, some, it's something that happened before you were born. So it's it's, it's not a brand that has, has, has a great deal of purchase. No. The idea of, like, 
and also, of course, you have a phone in your hand and you can watch the music you want whenever you want it. Having said that, one thing that, as we've talked a little bit about in other areas of this show, things that are coming back are the idea, curation, the idea of playlists mm. is huge. And so think it's strangely, you think, oh, you can just get it on your own device. Why do you ever need someone to put together a show for you? Weirdly, people do, including young people, like things to be organised for them in this way because everyone likes to sit back a little bit and let something happen rather than having to do it all themselves. And actually, some of the trends, more and more of the, are, are going back in the direction of curation and the equivalent of playlists. I'm using that as a modern idea of this, I guess, top of the box as a playlist. But um, I suppose there was live performance element and video and things like that. But people like the idea of curation. I think it's right. Um, you know, the, the the repeats of the old Top of the Pops do great business for BBC Four. They constantly, yeah. you know, if ever you see trending, the Thompson twins trending, you think, oh, they're doing uh, Top of the Pops from 1984. Well, that's one they, of the um... things they've got the rights for because the BBC don't have the rights to so mm. many of their shows, but they have all the rights to Top of the Pops, which is why they can keep putting that out. I think one of the issues with, with you know, obviously, so Top of the Pops is a brand... I think doesn't have the resonance it once had but the idea of having a weekly chart show on a, on a, on a big terrestrial channel I think the charts have changed an awful lot because yeah. um, of the era of streaming I think if you look at back at those old top of the pops it's constantly changing there's you know there's fun things going on new bands suddenly emerging from from nowhere if you look at the the, the top 10 this week now is a shame we don't have Top of the Pops, but another reason we do. So the number one at the moment, which is Noah Khan, which is um, Stick Season, is a genuinely brilliant song. It's a great, it's an absolutely classic number one single that I think everybody would love. But it's been in the charts for 15 weeks. You know, stuff hangs around a lot. Jack Hardo's been in the charts for nine weeks. He's in the, he's in the uh, 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 top 10. Um, Casso and Ray and D-Block Europe, they've been in 22 weeks. They've been in the charts and they're number five at the moment. Tate McRae and Greedy, 17 weeks. Cruel Summer by Taylor Swift is in the top 10. Yeah. It's been in the charts for 30 weeks. So the charts are quite blocked up. They're quite yeah. clogged with things. So if you're doing the rundown of the top 10 songs, it doesn't change an awful lot from week to week anymore, which I think loses some of the excitement of Top of the Pops, which yeah. is climbers, movers, you know. Yeah. Like the, the highest you went to this week is number 16 or something. There's, you know, it's the charts, because of streaming, because of the, of the way they're measured, things hang around a lot more. And if Taylor brings out a new album, suddenly she's got six songs in the top 10. Or if Drake does, you know, he's got, you know, 12 songs in the, in, in, in the top 20. So I think the charts are a different beast, that's for sure. I think really what we need is for people our age, and I'm assuming Sam King's age, a lovely show once a week that says, here's the new music. <laughs> you know, here are the songs that are popular. Here's a couple of new things. It's just that's the curation thing. Here's 10 songs that you can take into next week and you can talk about and you can listen to, one of which might become one of your new favorite songs because generation is missing out on all that music. So that show, I think, would be an interesting show to do. But I think a traditional top of the pops, which is the chart rundown, who's up, who's down, who's new entry, I think the charts are slightly too clogged to do that. And it's a shame. But Noah Khan's Stick Season, if you don't know, it's a, a very beautiful song. That is it for this week. But we will be back on Tuesday with the show proper and then another questions edition next week. So do please send more emails in with your questions. The rest is entertainment at gmail.com. They are so good. Yeah, that was great fun. Thank you. I genuinely love T R I E T Q E, uh, as the kids are calling it. So thank you very much, everyone, for your questions. And we'll see everyone on Tuesday, won't we? Bye bye. Bye. 
I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kaye, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy, and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts.